We are in a series on the book of Daniel, have been for part of the summer. It's kind of been a little bit uh, hit or miss over the past month or so, but we have talked about Daniel 1 and 2 and 3, and we're, if you have your Bibles with you today, if you'd open them up to Daniel chapter 4, that's what we'll be taking a stroll through today. And if you have your core guide, you can get that out and take any notes. There's a place for that on the front. When our core groups fire up here in a couple weeks, uh, the study path will take us all the way through the book of Daniel. And so for the first few weeks, what you study in core group will be a sermon that happened weeks ago. So we're going to go back and start at Daniel 1. And this week, I'm going to record um, uh, a miniature version of those sermons so that if you want to prepare for your core group, um, I'll have a little video for you to watch. And then um, and next week, you'll have core guides that will take you all the way through uh, Daniel 1, 2, and 3. And then about halfway through the series, we'll catch back up to where we are. So it's a little bit different than what it's normally looked like, but we'll do our best to keep you up to speed. And with that, I wonder how many of you um, read ahead and, you know, we put our calendar out there. We're going through the book of Daniel. Um, I, I would encourage you, before Sunday morning, it would be helpful if you read the passage that we're going to talk about. Sometimes when we come into the sanctuary, you know, we have the the busyness of life that just kind of comes with us. And, you know, our teams do a fantastic job of leading us to the throne room of God and helping prepare our hearts for what the Lord would say to us in these moments. And one, I think, one way to come into church poised and anticipating what God might have for you is to, to read ahead. And so, uh, this week, if you have some opportunity, turn to Daniel 5 and just read through uh, Daniel chapter 5. And uh, this is the, Daniel 5 is the one where there's the writing on the wall, so it's kind of an, an intriguing story. But today we visit Daniel 4. We are uh, introduced again to King Nebuchadnezzar, and by way of Review. He was the uh, the longest reigning monarch, king, emperor of the Babylonian Empire. Built it uh, to its peak of power and dominance and, and glory. Uh, one of his strategies for conquered territory was to take the people from their native land, uproot them, and and move them to Babylon. And so, in Daniel chapter one. He, uh, we learn about uh, Daniel and three of his friends. We know them best by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and he uprooted them as teenagers, moved them to Babylon. They went to Babylon University, were schooled in um, wisdom and uh, how to function and lead in the, within the Babylonian empire. And, and they... Uh, they thrived. 
They were smart kids, invested themselves. They drew some lines of demarcation, like, you know, we're not willing to eat your food, king. We need to keep something separate here. And they went to this, the, the test between some of the Babylonian kids and them, and, you know, they only ate vegetables and drank water for a period of time, and, and they were stronger and healthier and smarter than those kids. And, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's not a nice guy. He's an evil king. He was oppressive. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe how evil this guy was, but maybe try this one on. Remember a dictator named Saddam Hussein from about the same area? Um, Saddam believed that he was King Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. And so uh, Saddam held King Nebuchadnezzar up as his ultimate hero. So maybe that helps you realize just how nasty this guy was. Well, this king recognized that Daniel and his three friends had some aptitude, and, and so he put them in positions of power and leadership within the Babylonian Empire. And uh, they're put to the test in chapter 2, Daniel is. King has a dream, and he calls all of his wise folk together, and, and he says, I want you to interpret this dream I had. Okay, king, tell me the dream. Well, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You're going to have to guess what it is, or tell me what the dream is, and you're going to have to interpret it. And if you don't, well, I'm going to kill you and burn your house down. And his people said, there's nobody on earth. Nobody can do that. Only the gods could do that, but they don't, they don't interact with us like that. So the king says, okay, that's it. You're all going to die. Puts out the execution order and sends out his henchmen to round them all up and, and kill them. And they come to Daniel, and Daniel says, wait, wait, time out. I don't want to die. Not yet. What's going on? They explain to him the king's request, and Daniel says, I think that I can help you out. Get me an appointment with the king. So he goes, gets an appointment with the king, and uh, the king gives him the request, and Daniel is really upfront to tell him, there is no one on earth, none of your wise men, none of your people who are trained in dream analysis could do what you are uh, asking them to do. There's just no possible way, king, but there is a God. There is a God who can do that, and I know him. So Daniel is very clear to point out that I can't do this on my own, but there is a God that I know and trust that I think is willing to do this. So he goes and he prays with his friends and he comes back and he tells the king the dream. And then he interprets it for him. And the king recognizes God at this point, makes an acknowledgement of God. Now this isn't, uh, it, this is one step in King Nebuchadnezzar's faith journey. You know, they worshiped multiple gods, kind of like many people do in this country, the god of money, the god of power, the god of success, the god of, you know, your religious god. There's so many things that we invest time and give attention that we should be giving to the most high god, Yahweh, that we give to other things. 
And at this point in chapter 2, the king recognizes that the Hebrew God fits into, oh, I, can, I can include this God in, in my pantheon. So it's not like a conversion from polytheism to monotheism, but now he acknowledges that the Hebrew God exists. Then a couple weeks ago, we talked about chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of the more famous ones with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the fiery furnace. And, and at the end of, of that chapter, you can go back and read it or, or watch the video online, but um, God saves these boys from the furnace. And again, at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has this realization that this Yahweh God is an is a God who's not disconnected from what's going on. This is a God who cares. This is a God who listens to his people. This is a God who's powerful enough to rescue them even from a hot furnace. So there's this next step in his faith progression, which brings us to chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up with me. We're in Daniel chapter 4 interesting thing about this chapter is it's, it's written from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you listen to, um, if you've listened to how the king has talked in the first three chapters of the book, um, he boasted about himself a lot. He's always talking about his own success his own power, his own dominance, um, the, the reach of his empire. He, while he has some uh, verse here and there where he acknowledges God, for the most part, he's very self-absorbed and self-focused, and, and his language starts to change. Yeah, all of us have a testimony. If you are a person of faith, um, when you have an, an encounter with Almighty God, your life changes. And, and you can remember points along your journey where God has been very intentional and, and you've made that connection and we can tell those stories. And, and chapter four is, is one of those stories in the faith progression of, of this king. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. You notice how His language has changed? He's not boasting about Himself any longer. He's boasting about this God who has interacted with his life. It took a nightmare to get his attention. He was bent in his own way, and his life was good. His, he's the most powerful ruler of the most powerful, powerful empire in, in all the world. Nobody threatened this king. Life was organized all around exactly what he wanted. He had people at his beck and call all over the place. 
This was a guy who, he was able to define his own reality. He says it himself in in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I mean, that sounds like he's living the good life. It sounds like he's living the American dream. We want to be content and we want to be prosperous. I just want everything around me to go my way and, and I'll be happy. But late one night, he had a dream. Verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid. Hmm. He goes on to describe it. I was lying in bed. The images and the visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise people of Babylon to be brought before me, to interpret this dream for me. And when the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. I don't think they wanted to interpret this particular dream for him. We're going to look at the dream in here in just a second, but it's not a hard one to figure out. And I think his wise people probably knew the interpretation of the dream, but they were afraid of the king. I, we can't speak truth like this to this boss, because in the past, anybody who's done that, you know, it's not ended well for them. Hey, king, I don't, we're not sure, we're not sure what that means. Verse 8, finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. This king knows something about Daniel. So chapter 4 is, and we leave off in chapter 3 where those boys were probably still in their teens. There's a time gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so likely right here we are... 40, maybe 50 years down the road. And so Daniel has been with this king for a long time. He has been a faithful and trusted advisor and servant of the king. And the king has been able to watch how Daniel has lived his life and carried himself. And the king has recognized that there's something about his God, the most high God, that is at work and alive in Daniel's life. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. So his dream is this. He dreams of this huge, enormous tree that's at the center of the earth. And this is a tree that is described to reach all the way up to the heavens. Branches and leaves and fruit, and it provided shade and shelter for the animals below and the birds of the air, and it was supplied in abundance so that everybody would have something to eat. So this is the picture that he has in his mind. Then he sees this What's described as, uh, in some of your translation, it says a holy watcher or a holy messenger of the Lord who, who comes down and he calls out that this tree needs to be chopped down. But 
Once we chop the tree down and disperse of all the leaves and cut off all the branches and just take all of that apart, I want you to leave the stump and the root system and bind it to the earth. And at this point of your dream, of his dream, the stump becomes a person. And now the messenger is talking about this stump that uh, it would be drenched with the dew of heaven or the, you know, just soaked in rain. And, and that this stump, this, this person now would be driven out and away from people and would become like one of the animals, have the mind of an animal, uh, and just be, just be outcast. So this is the dream. And Daniel is given the task of interpreting this particular dream. Are you good at figuring out what dreams mean? I'm assuming we all dream. Everybody's had a dream, yes. Um, if you study dreams at all, they say that uh, oftentimes we play out um, our unconscious fears in our dreams. They say our dreams are loaded with things that we don't recognize or don't know about ourselves. They, they say that our dreams are often a way that God penetrates into our minds um, and, and gives us little nuggets to, to think about. If you study dreams, you know, a lot of times there's... How many of you had a dream like you're falling? Everybody's had a falling dream? That's like, you know, they, they say that if you have those kind of dreams, that there's something in your life that you feel like you're losing control over. Um, I read about, you know, if you, have a, if you have ever had a dream about water, you know, of some, you know, waves or an ocean or a river or... Um, and depending on the... It, whether the water is uh, calm or turbulent or clean or dirty, you know, just suggests different things to you. So, like a dream about turbulent water would suggest that there's something going on in your life that you just don't feel settled over. If you have a dream about filthy water, that that could be your your body's way of telling you that, hey, I'm I'm sick. There's an illness in me. Uh, if you have a dream about chocolate, well, you just want to have chocolate. Uh, <clears throat> if you have a dream about the Seahawks winning, they're not playing the Packers. Um, <laughs> I had to do it at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. It's all in good fun, right? You were just waiting. <laughs> Dreams tell us things about ourselves, and they're fun to poke around and, and think about, but they can be serious too, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, he trusts Daniel. He is so troubled by this dream. He wants, he wants to know the truth, and he knows that Daniel's in touch with the Holy Spirit of God in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, after hearing the dream, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. And so the king said, 
Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, I want the truth. And Daniel said, you can't handle the truth. And the king says, it's okay. Now, if we pause here for a second, Daniel's been with this king for a long time. Daniel as far as we know, is one who is in tune with the Holy Spirit and really has the heart of God. Would you agree with that so far in the Daniel story? I've been reading this for a long time that Daniel was afraid of the king. If I interpret this dream and tell the king that that this is bad news for him, my life might end today. Like all of the rest of the Babylonian wise people, I don't think they interpreted the dream because they were afraid of the king. I think Daniel is afraid for the king. I think he recognizes the hand of God, that God is fed up with the pride of this king, and it is about to go south for this guy. And I think Daniel is genuinely afraid for the king and what might happen to him if he continues to be deeply rooted in his selfish pride if he continues to not bend his knee before the Most High God. Daniel says, this is bad news, King. It's a dream, and it's about you. You are the tree. You are the tree. And it's about to be chopped down. See, Chapter 4 is it's about pride. And I'd rather not have to talk about pride. It's kind of a, one of those uncomfortable things. And when you preach about pride, you know what happens? You get opportunity to practice it. So none of what we talk about this morning, uh, I don't have the privilege or the pleasure of standing up here and drawing a line and saying, you know, you. If I say that, what I mean is we. These are things that we all struggle with in the human condition. I'm not uh, immune to struggling with ways that, that my selfishness and pride gets in the way sometimes. There's three things that I noticed about pride in in this text. One is that pride blinds us. The second is that pride isolates us. And the third that the third thing is that pride leads us to destruction. We're not talking about we're not talking about healthy pride. I mean we're proud of our kids. We're proud of a job well done. You know, those, there's healthy kind of pride, things that we can, wow, you know what, that was, that was fantastic. I am proud of, of, of you as a church in the ways that we reach out and the ways that we respond to need. When missionaries come, you know, a few weeks ago we had the Sunbergs here, and, and it's my fault. I, I wasn't able to the next week share with you, but I think, John, we sent them $3,500. Is that right? The offering at the end after the Sunbergs here was $3,500. That is fantastic. I'm proud of things like that. I'm proud at District 
assembly, when, when I can stand up and report that our congregation, that us, that, that we uh, prioritize uh, reaching out to people in need. Those are things, that, that's a healthy kind of a pride. Chapter 4, we're not, we're not dealing with that kind of stuff. Chapter 4, we're talking about pride that is puffed up, cruel, conceited, arrogant, demanding, vain, impatient. Pride that convinces us or gives us an air of superiority over other people. It's a pride that we see it in other people so quickly. I mean, it, I mean just in the blink of an eye, you can come into contact with somebody and you can say they're full of pride. So it's easy to identify out there, but it's really, it's really hard to identify in ourselves. It, you know, we're blinded by our pride. So like an example would be, we, would, uh, we might accuse somebody uh, of being egotistical, but we would report the same behavior in ourselves as, I'm just confident. We would look at others and say, you know what, they are overly demanding. We're just pursuing excellence. <laughs> we look at other people as maybe being uh, conceited and snobbish, but we look at ourselves and you say, I'm, I'm just a secure person. We look at others as being selfishly arrogant, and we, we look at ourselves and we say, I'm just a go-getter. I'm kind of type A, I'm driven, and, and it's going to happen. You see how easy it is to, to just flip that around? And so what we accuse other people of, the same behavior in ourselves, pride, our pride has blinded us to the reality, like how other people might be viewing our actions. See, pride... Pride damages our spiritual retina. It blinds us to how we may be treating other people. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he knows that something is wrong, but he's too blinded by his own pride to know exactly what it is. And it usually takes, for us, it usually takes something really significant. It takes a disturbance or a crisis to open our eyes. It takes, it takes like, what was described in the dream that we just read about to happen to us, to get our attention, to convince us that we might need to change our ways. So Daniel interprets this dream, and he gives him the bad news, but you were talking about Daniel having the heart of God. Look at verse 27. He says, Therefore, your majesty, after delivering all this bad news, after confronting the king with the absolute truth, be pleased to accept my advice. I care enough about you that maybe, let's hold out just a little nugget of hope here. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. King, if you would just, if you would just recognize it, if, if you would bow your knee if you would humble yourself before the Most High God, if you would repent and turn, if you would 
Stop oppressing all the people that, that you're being wicked to. And, and, and that big tree of abundance that you have, if you would start plucking some of that fruit and giving it away to the people that you're oppressing right now. You've been given this huge responsibility. God has blessed you with all of this, and you're taking it and you're using it to build your kingdom. And to build your kingdom, you're stepping on a whole bunch of people. If you were to pluck some of that fruit and feed them, Treat them with mercy and with kindness. If you start doing that, maybe God would relent. Maybe he would change his mind. And maybe your prosperity would continue. So what happens? (laughs) Verse 29. Well, verse 28 says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. So... That kind of gives it away. Verse 29, 12 months later. So a month goes by, nothing happens. Eh, Maybe it was just a dream. Maybe I had bad pizza, you know? Maybe it just wasn't a good day. Uh, Two months goes by. Hmm, I don't even, what was that dream about? Three months, half a year goes by. Did I have a dream sometime? I mean, Daniel, what was that conversation? 12 months goes by. Nothing has changed for the king. See, pride, our pride always lulls us into thinking that we can get away with what we're doing. It blinds us to the reality of consequences of our behavior. Pride focuses our attention on the allure of our success and And we might ask, well, who says the wages of sin is death? Look at my life. I mean, everything seems to be going good. The king at this point doesn't really seem like he's concerned about his dream coming true. And so he's strolling around the roof of his royal palace, surveying his city. Look at what I have built, he says. Verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. What an ego this guy has, huh? (laughs) Do you see where he is? He's up, lofted, up on his lofty, expansive rooftop. Let me tell you something about pride. Pride always looks down. Pride knows nothing of looking up. You elevate yourself with your pride and you're puffed up and you're up here. <laughs> look at all of them down there. Look, look at what I have accumulated. Look at all, look at my kingdom. Pride looks down and knows nothing of looking up. You know, we get caught up in admiring what we've done. Uh, we look for ways to elevate ourselves over and above other people. Maybe it's intellect or aptitude for something or athletic ability or, or success or Even in the church, some people elevate themselves spiritually one over another. That's pride, and it puts us in this lofty position, and we look down. I was thinking about other stories in the Scripture, um, and I was remembering an episode in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, and I think it may be an assigned reading in your core guide this week. It may be one of my favorite episodes in the scripture. Jesus has just told the disciples 
that he was going to die, that he'd be crucified, that he would be dead, he'd be buried, but you know, on the third day he's going to rise again. And in this particular episode, it says the disciples didn't say anything about it. You know why? Because they were afraid. Because if, if Jesus was going to die the way that the Romans worked is if they killed Jesus for being a, a political traitor, then they would round up the rest of his merry gang and they would execute them as well. So don't talk about death, Jesus, because we don't want to die. You know, they, they got focused on the dying part and they forgot, they didn't, they didn't hear like, la, 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 la. They didn't hear Jesus say, but I will be raised to new life on the third day. The very next verse, uh, it says that they, they arrived at their destination and Jesus' question for them was, hey guys, on our journey from A to B, what were y'all talking about? And they don't want to answer his question. So one verse prior, they're afraid of dying, of associating themselves with Jesus. <laughs> we don't want to be any part of that death thing, Jesus. The very next verse, we find out that they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who gets the corner office? Who has risen to power? Who has you know, puffed themselves up enough to be able to look down and say, hey, I'm the one who's going to give the orders now. And then Jesus shows them what a picture of humility looks like and he calls a child and he talks about anyone who serves the least of these you know that that one i was reminded here of of all of the stories in scripture i mean the bible is full of characters who turn the mirror on us who give us an example of what it looks like to be a human and sometimes the picture isn't all that attractive. We learn things. It, scripture exposes us if we let it. Like, oh yeah, I've done that and that and that. Oh, my goodness. We have this tendency that the king is exhibiting in this passage in us. We have this capacity to let pride well up inside us. We, and, and we allow it to blind us to things all around us also isolates us. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, hey, look how glorious I am, what an awesome day this is. As he was speaking those words, a voice came from heaven. Twelve months later, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass, and we think that's about seven years, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. You've been prideful long enough, King. I've, I've had enough. That's it. Your royal authority is gone. You're being removed. You're fired. Immediately, what he said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from people, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with dew until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. For seven years, he's removed from people. His pride had 
Well, it isolated him from other people, his whole kingdom, all of his court, and, and everybody who was at his beck and call are now somewhere out there. Pride pulls us away from one another and, and pulls us away from God. Pride pushes us towards independence rather than interdependence. We get a, with pride, we get a lot of I, 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 my, I. I can do it on my own. My way is better. My way is right. We've got to do it my way because that's how it's going to work the best. And every time we say I, we're putting, a, we're putting a little bit more distance between us and another person because sometimes you may be right. And when we interact with one, we seek interdependence, then, then that creates an environment where we all listen to one another. But if, if, if you are a person whose pride fills you up and the only way that can be right is your way, you know, other people are just going to start backing off. Okay, well, you can do it on your own. That, that's fine. Have a nice life. You isolate yourself one little step at a time. I uh, think back to the opening pages of Scripture. We learn about characters. Uh, you, you may have heard of them. Names are Adam and Eve. And um, they were kind of enamored with their own self-importance. They, they questioned their need for God and His wisdom, and they, they kind of ventured out on their own because they were convinced that they knew better than God. And they, they, you know, the devil convinced them, hey, God is just holding out. He's not telling you the whole truth. He's holding out on you. You're smarter than that. You'd know what's going on here. Take matters into your own hands. You're right. So they said, we know better than you, God. And they ate that fruit that he said, don't eat it. And they disobeyed. And God responded to their sin of pride, and he banished them from the garden. In kind of a similar fashion to Nebuchadnezzar, the curse that fell on Adam and Eve, um, it connected them more with the life of animals than it did connect them with the life of the Creator and of the heavenly place that He had made for them. See, their pride separated from them from God. You can't worship God with pride in your heart. It's impossible. You can't worship God when pride is occupying a place in your heart. It will create distance between you and God. It will begin to isolate you. And then it, it isolates you from other people. And, and my favorite scripture to talk about this is, is um, Luke chapter 15. We learn about this family, two boys and a dad. We, it's famously labeled the parable of the prodigal son. You heard about that one? I think it's more of a parable about a running father in the picture that we get of, of God in this one. But there's two boys, one who wishes his dad was dead, essentially, because he's like, I want my inheritance now. And, and the, the dad says, okay, doesn't even argue. And to give a kid an inheritance before you've passed on in those days was a humiliating thing. Today, we live in a society where some people, they save up and, and enjoy giving inheritances before they pass on so that they can watch and see how their kids blossom and use it and, and see all of the joy that it might bring to an extended family. But in those days, they didn't have mutual funds. They didn't have a, a 401k. They, they didn't have all of these stock options and, and money in a bank account that they just went down to the bank and said, oh yeah, I need to withdraw half of my fortune because I want to give it to my boy. All of their investments were in property, were in, in cattle and livestock. And so to, 
to get half of an inheritance for this boy, they had to sell the family property. They had to reduce the size of their herd and sell it off so that they could cash out and, and give it to this kid. So the kid's like, Dad, I wish you were just dead already so that I could do with, I could do with what you're going to give me on my own. I want, I want to make all of the choices. And he takes it, and we know that he goes off and he squanders it on, on wild living. And where does he end up? He's distanced from people. He thought all of that inheritance. He thought all of the partying. He thought all of the, hey, I'm going to buy the rounds tonight. I've, I'm going to go get this. Let's go here. He thought that that would bring people closer to him. But he was cultivating an environment where it has to be my way. And ultimately, when the money ran out, people didn't see, they didn't have any value in the person. And he ended up scrounging around with the pigs, desiring to eat the pig's food. Well, there's another boy in this story. And this is the older son. You know, he's the one, I've been doing this the right way. So when the younger son, the prodigal, comes back begging for dad, and dad says, oh, let's welcome him back in. <laughs> the older brother's isolated. He's outside. He wasn't in it to maintain relationship with his, with his family. He was in it because I'm doing it the right way. And his pride moved him to the fringes as well. So we have two boys filled with pride. They demanded life on their own terms, and they wanted these kingdoms for themselves rather than a kingdom with other people. And at the end of the story, the, you know, uh, the one boy he is um, with the pigs apart, but he, he turns around and, and comes back. And, and at the end of the story, the oldest brother is, is left on, on the outside Pride leads us to isolation, and if it is left unattended, pride's going to lead us to destruction. Proverbs, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I don't know of a verse that spells it out more clearly than that. Pride goes before destruction. James and Peter talk about how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Luke teaches us that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, if you have an overabundance of pride, it's kind of setting you up for some big letdowns, huge crashes in your life. You think you're so great, and then something causes you to realize that, well, maybe, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. It's built into our educational system. We go to elementary school. Most elementary schools takes you like kindergarten through fifth grade. Well, those fifth graders, they really think they're something. By the time they've risen to power in the school, hey, we're the fifth graders. Well, then they, you know, they graduate fifth grade. They move up into the middle school. And now, oh, I'm just a lowly sixth grader. The same thing happens in middle school. By the time they're in eighth grade, and now puberty is set in, and whew, chemical bath in the brain, and whoo. We are big, bad eighth graders. Well, there's something called high school that's right around the corner. And what happens with them? I'm just a ninth grader. You know, it's built into our model. And there's these points where we just rise and we think we're all that. And then we find out, no, oh, we're not. It happens with kids who go off to college. And they get trained for careers. And in my day uh, when I had my, my uh, sales company, uh, 
We did recruiting adventures to some of the big uh, universities, University of Illinois, University of, um, or Indiana University, and, and they had some top-notch kids coming out of those programs. I was impressed with a lot of them. But there were, there were a few that I interviewed that were just full of pride. Look at all, look at everything that I have accomplished in my 22 years of life. Uh, a question I often asked was, so why would, why would somebody like me hire somebody like you? And, and the ones that were the most full of pride would say something like, so I can make you successful. Interesting. That's a good choice of words there. Not. Could you tell me, now what, you know, do you have your own business? Do you, you know, what's, you know, let's look at your W-2. Um, tell me how your success is going to translate to me. Don't, isn't it flipped around? And sometimes we get to points in our life where we aren't even thinking straight anymore. And we're setting ourselves up for a crash. I've counseled many a young person through that first few crash of, crashes of failure. It's okay. Life will continue to go on. You can learn and you can build and, and you can move forward into the future. But will we do this? We set ourselves up. We think we're something more than we are. And when we figure out that we're not, it hurts. We have this letdown. We have this crash and King Nebuchadnezzar had set himself up against God repeatedly and God brings down the king he moves against human pride in a swift tangible way and God humbles Nebuchadnezzar because King Neb wouldn't humble himself this holy watcher comes with this big steel magnum chainsaw and just that tree's coming down. Does that frighten you? It's okay to nod your head. Yes, it frightens me. Because I think about this king, other people in scripture, if it shows me that should God choose to deal with my pride, he could do it in a way that brings me down and exposes me. You know, we can choose to humble ourselves or we can wait for God to humble us. Either way, it's going to be painful. But I think that it's better if we choose to bend, if we choose to bow down, if we choose to humble ourselves. It's a dangerous and deadly thing to believe that we are self-made, that we are free to treat people any way that we please, that, that our opinion is always right, that we can do with our money, our mouth, our body, whatever we please. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to, to believe that, that we are rulers over our lives and that we reign supreme in our own little fiefdoms. If we believe things like this, God may just visit us in our dreams. I'm not suggesting that God wants to destroy us. That's, don't, hear, don't hear me that way. What I'm saying is that God is able to bring low those who walk in pride. And one day, he says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, period. So what is God doing here? That clock moves, moves way too quickly. <laughs> Just saying. 
Just listen to this. What's God doing here? He's, he's refusing to let a person he loves live under the delusion of self-sovereignty. God loves you that much. To go to the length of, I may have to get out the chainsaw, but some way, somehow, you're going to bow to me. And he looks out at you and he says, I would rather you make the decision on your own. He put King Nebuchadnezzar in a place where he could save him. He didn't end it right there. King Nebuchadnezzar went into his own period of exile, but that was exactly the place that he needed to be for God to get his attention so he would humble himself. Have you ever been humbled by God? <laughs> yeah. I've seen God move to break my own prideful arrogance. doesn't feel really good. But I can testify to the fact that ultimately it's healing and restoring and life-giving. You know, if the only picture that we had in Scripture was God wielding a chainsaw, we wouldn't really have much choice but to be afraid of God and out of our fear humble ourselves. There's another picture of God dealing with human pride and, and it's good news for us. Remember this is King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of his faith journey, of his discovery of God. And If we look back at Luke 15, there's that picture of the father. The father loved these boys enough to go out to both of them to risk humiliation on his own part, to rescue his boys and bring them back into the fold. He is the one who initiated the restoration. He's the only one who could extend to them new life. And his love ran that deep for his kids, both who had turned their back on him. But he was willing to go to great lengths. Love isn't concerned about looking foolish. See, the other picture of God that we have in Scripture is one where he does not stand above and look down and unleash his fury, fury when he feels like it. God doesn't send down his holy watcher, but God himself comes down. He is born to a low-class girl in a stable outside of the lowly town of Bethlehem. And as he's growing up, before he starts his ministry, the devil takes him by the elbow and they go out to the wilderness and the devil says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no. That's not how it's going to work. He chooses poverty over wealth. He sides with the weak and the rejected and the outcast. He washes dirty feet. He refuses power and position and he willingly lays down his life for you. I don't know what it will take to break your pride. Maybe a nightmare, maybe a holy watcher, maybe a crash of cataclysmic proportions. Maybe you could do what Nebuchadnezzar did. That's an odd thing to say about an evil king, isn't it? Verse 34, at the end of that time, I 
Nebuchadnezzar. I raised my eyes. I, I raised my eyes. We can tell that his pride is gone. Pride knows nothing of looking up. Pride only knows looking down. And here at the end, after he has been humbled, he relents, he submits, he gives his I think the guy was saved. He raises his eyes to heaven. For so long, his pride had blinded him and isolated him, nearly destroyed him. He had been looking down on others, but now his eyesight, now his focus has changed. It's no longer looking to the things of himself, but now he is looking to his maker, to his creator, to his savior. And true to his word, if you read the end of the chapter, it says that God restored him, brought him back. He was no longer isolated, but he was reunited with his people. He was reunited with God in, in relationship, and he was able to move forward. And, and this is the last we know of King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Ne next week, when we study chapter 5, we see what happens when we refuse to bend. I don't know what issue you're dealing with right now, but my guess is... There may be just a nugget of pride in all of us that we need to lay before God, that instead of looking down, we just turn our focus to Him and say, okay, Lord, you can have that too. I submit. I relent. I repent. I, I need to go the other direction. And God will be faithful to forgive you and to restore you and to help you move off into the future that He has for you. The people of God said, mm -hmm. amen. Would you stand with me for prayer?